May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 20, which along with Psalm 21 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, December the 30th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look in prophecy in Isaiah, also in the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, and then in John's Gospel, and where we're going to be there is chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. going to have a couple of things to say about the provenance of that particular passage when we get to it. <clears throat> so remember yesterday, what we, what we did was we, we looked at Isaiah's prophecy in, in chapter 12, the first six verses there, and what we saw was is that he was celebrating a future salvation and deliverance for the people. But it was so real to him in the spirit that he knew he could count on that because he could, knew he could count on God's covenant relationship with his people so he knew that he would return his people to the land and so he celebrated that in spite of what was actually going on because he knew God's character and that was the most important thing and then what we saw yesterday in the gospel lesson with the Pharisees who didn't believe in Jesus they didn't believe that he was the Christ they didn't believe that he was anything at all and and they didn't believe it because of well he's from Galilee they didn't believe it because of what they already, quote, knew, in spite of the fact that what they knew was wrong. And so they couldn't participate in the joy of, of Jesus, God, in the flesh, being among them, because they already knew that's not who he was, in spite of the fact that, well, they were wrong. And so John encourages the churches to trust the revelation yesterday because of the resurrection, of Jesus, that he was the faithful witnesses, and the proof that he was the faithful witnesses when he was resurrected from the dead. And so because he was resurrected from the dead, he is the faithful witness. And because he's the faithful witness, then in his life, he is the faithful witness now as well. So here we are in Isaiah 25 today. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So he, he's praising him and exalting the Lord because of what he's done, because of the wonderful things that he has already done. And he says those things were planned from of old, and those plans were faithful and sure because, well, the one who planned them was. Uh, for you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So when he's talking about the fortified city, he's not talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the, the cities of the enemies of God's people. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. He's looking back at some level here to Egypt, right? Because those strong peoples will glorify him, and that's exactly what God said he would do at the Red Sea. He will get glory for himself over Pharaoh and his army, and he'll be glorified in the eyes of the Egyptians. So while they may not worship him, they may only fear him, he will be glorified, which means that he will be seen as the God above their gods. He says, For you have been a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. 
for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. In other words, you may think you're all that in a bag of chips, y'all, the other our enemies, but you're not, because compared to God, you're nothing. And so he has been a stronghold to the needy in distress, and that would be the people of God who are under duress from their enemies. On this mountain, Jerusalem, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He is, this, is, this is the banquet, the heavenly banquet for the, uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's being described here. He, he, he's saying that all nations will come, and, and God will bless all nations here in this place. And so what do we get? At the end of Revelation, we get the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. And so Jerusalem is indeed the center of the world at that point. <clears throat> and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And so Isaiah is saying you can count on this. What you can count on is the coming of God's kingdom and the fullness of his kingdom. There'll be nothing like death that will be, quote, swallowed up forever. What a beautiful metaphor that is. <clears throat> and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So he says that, that he will vindicate his people. That's what it means to take away the reproach of his people from all the earth. So whatever people think of you today, ultimately every knee will bow to him. If you're bowing the knee now and, and you're being ridiculed for that, rejected for that, then, then the word, the good news that Isaiah has for you is there's going to come a time when, when you'll be vindicated. But that time isn't necessarily today. And so he's asking and, and, and requiring us to be patient, knowing this will truly happen. So he's, he's calling us to faith. And we can have that faith on our end because we have more evidence for it. We have the incarnation of Jesus. We have the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. And then we have his continuing word to the church through the book of the Revelation. And then also the continuing word in the church today where he is faithfully proclaimed and people are continuing to receive life in his name. It'll be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And what does it mean to wait? It doesn't mean waiting with your wringing your hands. No, it means waiting in faith, standing steadfast, being strong and courageous because of what God has already done. We can trust him then for what he has promised he will do. In the, the gospel lesson today, as I said, I've got a minute to say something about this. The, this passage, John seven fifty three to eight eleven, this passage was not in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. And the people who discovered that were, well, Christian scholars. And they didn't hide from it. They told the world about it. They, in the, uh, the, the manuscripts, the original manuscripts, where these do show up, it, this and at the end of Mark's gospel, the part, for instance, that includes drinking poison and, and, and handling snakes, both those come in 2nd, 3rd century A.D. And when they do, the people who are making the manuscripts, so the people who were copying what they were given to copy, 
like would put essentially big stars and brackets all around this stuff saying we don't know where this came from because we've been through this manuscript before and we've never seen this so we're not sure where it came from but i'm just telling you as the copier there's there's something wrong here i don't know where this came from because i'm familiar with this with the text and i've never seen this before but it's in what I'm copying, so I'm faithfully copying it, but I'm also telling you I don't know where it came from. So it's important to know that about this, and it's probably added later because it sounded like, it, well, it fit, right? So what we get is they, Jesus, remember yesterday, had been in the temple during the festival. They each went each to his own house. That the They would be the Pharisees and the chief priests. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And, and at some level, what you're hearing there is there was no room at the end. So he, that's the reason he and the disciples always stayed at the Mount of Olives. There was no place in Jerusalem during those festivals. There, there was nobody who would give them rooms to stay in in the festivals. They were given a room in which to celebrate the feast, which is something they were actually kind of required to do, was, was to, to make sure that everyone could eat the feast in Jerusalem at the Passover. Then, then people who lived there were obliged to provide a place for these travelers. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So just the common people are being taught. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders, brought a woman to him who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So they're asking Jesus to opine on the law, and, and what they've done is what? They caught a woman in the act of adultery. In other words, they saw it happening, which is what Phineas, who was one of the early priests, saw a, a, an Israelite man take a Moabite woman into his tent to have sex with her, and Phineas then goes in with a spear and runs it through both of them, pins them to the ground. It was the, you could do that, so long as they were caught in the act. But the only way that you could carry out the punishment in the act was literally to do what he did. Because after the act is done, then, then it's he said, she said. So you've got to have more than one witness and all that. And so here we come with all these leaders. Well, if you're the leaders and you say that's the law, why aren't you carrying out the law? And how did you happen to catch a woman in an act of adultery? Was she alone? Or did she have a partner? And if he, she had a partner, where's he? It, it had to have been a setup. The whole thing had to have been a setup for them to be there at the time of the act of adultery actually happening. In today's um, Judaism, it, it, in Judaism for a long time, actually, uh, if, if this happened, the man was required to divorce his wife. He couldn't take her back either because she had so flouted the marital contract that that he, he was not allowed to do anything other than divorce her. Now that obviously is not the same with Hosea, right? So God shows us something through the prophetic that that's different. But here, what, they're bringing the woman. They don't bring the man. How did you all happen to know it? How did you happen to be there? Why were you there? So everybody there is guilty at some level. If it's a setup and a plan, then they're all guilty themselves of arranging this whole thing. They could have stopped it in advance if they were able to be there and see all of this. 
They could have stopped it all in advance, but they chose not to. So they were testing him so that they'd have some charge to bring against him because they wanted to prove him to be a false teacher. So he bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. We have no earthly idea what it was. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let he, him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So we've already said they're all guilty because they knew about this thing in advance and they have an obligation to stop it before it happens, but they don't. So the, the suggestion that he's making here is, is that none of you can actually stand up against her because you're all guilty of sin as well. There's one in this scene, however, who's not. So the one who could throw the stone is the one who doesn't throw the stone. Once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, what he said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. This is an interesting idea that, that the, the older ones are the first ones to sort of get it and leave. And, and then Jesus was left alone, ultimately, with the woman only standing before him. And she, he stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? So when he's writing on the ground, he is intently focused on writing on the ground and doesn't see these people leaving. So he stands up and sees they've gone and says, hasn't anyone condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I mean, her use of the word Lord there tells you something about what she believes about him, in spite of the fact that she's the one caught in adultery. And then he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He's not denying that she sinned. But he tells her not to sin anymore. It's an important thing for us to see that forgiveness that Jesus gives and, and that she is not condemned. She stands convicted, but not condemned. Conviction is guilt. Condemnation is the sentencing phase, and Jesus doesn't condemn her. It doesn't mean she's not convicted. It doesn't mean she's not guilty. It means the punishment has been taken, and ultimately he's the one who takes it, but also he can he cannot condemn her while at the same time not for, not forgiving her because that forgiveness has to come from God. But here Jesus takes it upon himself to, to set her free by his words. In the passage from Revelation today, we have John, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was exiled to the island of Patmos because of his testimony about Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which would be Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So this voice like a trumpet, I always have to say this, that trumpet that we're seeing there it is the, the shofar. It's the, the, the shofar and the trumpet that are played on Rosh Hashanah, which is the, the voice from man crying out to God. Here, it's the other way around. It's God's voice speaking to man. But it sounds like a trumpet. But it's, it's understandable as words. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Those represent the seven churches. In the midst of the lampstand, one like a man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash 
about his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, which is the voice of God. We, we see that multiple times in the Old Testament where the voice of God is described in that way. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the division of joints and marrow. And so it's, it's finally applied. It's the conviction of sin by the word of God. Because the word of God should convict us of sin, because it should convict us of noncompliance. So here he sees this this sword coming from his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the transfigured Jesus, right? Everything is is bright and white. This, this is the, an even greater transfiguration than John saw on the mountain of transfiguration there with. Um, James and Peter. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, he says, basically, I hit the ground like a ton of bricks, man. I, I, I couldn't stand. I fell like I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me. I mean, think about that. He doesn't have to do that. Again, like I have told you before with the, with the lepers, he, he didn't have to touch that leper to heal him, but he did. Because that made it personal. It made it real in a different way whenever the touch comes. And so here, he didn't tell him, just get up. No, he laid his right hand on me. And he said, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is real, John. It's absolutely real. Feel my touch. And you know that that if you have a a small child and that child is in fear and need to be comforted well, you don't just speak to that child to comfort the child no you touch the child you give them a physical manifestation of your presence so that the fear can be taken away and so here it's exactly the same thing i'm the first and the last and the living one you don't have any reason to fear the only thing that you have to fear is me and i'm telling you not to be afraid I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore and had the keys of death and Hades. I'm the one, John. I'm Jesus, and I had the keys of death and Hades. I can lock up all your earthly fears. I can lock up all of that stuff, and I can put in there whatever I want to put there. I have control over death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in other words, what he's saying is is that those churches are there, and each of those churches has an angel assigned to look over that church and watch over that church and protect that church. And sometimes it's got to protect the church from those things that are happening in the church, and sometimes it has to protect the church from things that are happening on the outside of the churches. But those churches, those angels are given to each church to protect and preserve it and to bless it. It's important that we not lose sight of those things, that we, we take um, everything to the bank, that we believe in all that he has said. And we can believe him because they're like 
Isaiah said that these are plans from of old. The things that God had always intended to do, he did bring to pass in the past. He is bringing to pass in the present, and he will be faithful in the future as well. You can take that to the bank as well.